Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for today's podcast is Kevin Concanon, who was nominated by President Obama and Secretary Vilsack and confirmed by the U.S. Senate in July of 2009 to serve as the Undersecretary for Food, Nutrition, and Consumer Services in the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, Mr. Concanon has principal responsibilities and funding authority for some of the largest nutrition programs in the world, certainly in the United States, uh, including the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, the Women, Infants, and Children's Program, and a variety of other things. He's been heavily involved in these programs and working very hard to get food to people in the United States who need it. Um, So welcome, Kevin. I'm delighted to have you here. Happy to be here. So give us a sense, if you will, of the scope of these nutrition assistance programs and how many, how much money is spent on these and how many people are affected? Well, the Food and Nutrition Service within the U.S. Department of Agriculture operates 15 feeding programs. They are available across the country. These programs are federally financed uh, in total, and there are some administrative costs. They're cost-shared with the states, but most of the expenditure comes federally. And the 15 feeding programs, as I often remark these days, have never been more urgently needed than they are right now. Because of the where, economy and Because so of, are. yeah, the fact we're in uh, the third year, well into the third year of an extended recession. And uh, to give you an example of the reach, the SNAP program, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, Uh, served uh, last month 41.8 million Americans. This is a program that state by state, people who find themselves either unemployed, underemployed, uh, without without adequate resources, and whose income falls below 130% of the federal poverty level are eligible for this program. They get a plastic card, not unlike a Visa card or a MasterCard, that they can take, these benefits can only be spent on food, uh, and uncooked food, I should mention as well. And so supermarkets across the country and, and a smaller number of, uh, a smaller percentage of small stores accept these just like they are cash. And the family of four would receive benefits on average about $350 per month. And the number of people who are uh, eligible or involved in this program has gone up dramatically, hasn't it? The number of people, that this program is very sensitive to what's going on in the economy. And uh, so the number of enrolled people has gone up from a low point back in the late 90s of 17 million people to today, 418 that's about a 58% increase just in the last three years. So it's very important. Now, our goal in all of this, and about half of that 41 million uh, enrolled are children. So it is a major a first line of defense uh, against hunger in the United States. Now, while our goal and our focus is on those individuals and families who receive the benefit, we're not unmindful of the fact that a USDA economic study done now, six years or so ago, showed that for every $5 in food benefits through these cards, it generates up to $9.20 in the local economy through the multiplier effect. So Mark Zandi, who is the chief economist for Moody's, one of the international rating agencies, 
uh, has testified before Congress saying he believes the best example of a stimulus program uh, in the recent past is the SNAP program. Well, 41.8 million people on it across the U.S. We also, as you know, operate a series of school-based feeding programs. The National School Lunch Program, 32 million American children have lunch at school, public and private schools, mostly public, and of that number, about 20 million of those children receive that lunch at for free or at reduced price based on family income. Another 11 million children have breakfast at, at school, an increasing phenomenon, and we've had very promising results in that and great feedback from teachers, building principals, and others, uh, school nurses included, who say the number of kids coming to the school nurse's office in the middle of the morning with a headache or other problem is is declined uh, post uh, the introduction of school breakfast. We also have a summer feeding program for children through rec departments or some schools that run summer schools. And uh, we're also, one of our most significant programs is the Women, Infants, and Children Special uh, Supplemental Nutrition Program, WIC it's called. And it uh, reaches 49% of the pregnant women in the United States and 49% of the infants in the first year of life in the U.S. with, again, a very special prescriptive uh, nutrition program. Again, our goal being to both support healthy nutrition for that mom during a pregnancy, but to get kids started in the first year of life. We promote breastfeeding as one of the, we know that's very beneficial to both the mother and the child as an example. So that's enormous reach, with so many millions of people being affected by these programs. And I know that one of the, the issues that you've been addressing is that there are not not 100% of people who are eligible for these programs actually enroll, and you're trying to find ways to make it easier for people to enroll, for them to find out about the benefits that, that they can receive, et cetera. And I, one interesting thing I heard you say is that there are big differences across geographic parts of the country and what percentage of eligible people actually enroll for, say, the, the food stamps, the supplement, the SNAP program. Yes, the SNAP program, what used to be called food stamps, as I mentioned, is federally uh, paid for wholly, and the, the general eligibility for that program is set federally as well, based on the federal poverty level. And across the U.S., about two-thirds of the people who are eligible for the program are receiving it. But that statistic, two-thirds, masks the regional or state-by-state variations. And one example I might mention on that front, for example, at each end of the country, the state of Maine or the state of Oregon, in each of those states, if you are eligible by virtue of your income, 90% of the eligibles in those states will receive the benefit. Yet we have other states in the country, uh, large sections uh, in the southern part of the U.S., where there are significant populations of eligibles, yet those states more typically run at 50% or 51 or 52% of the eligibles receiving the benefit. That's not accidental. Part of that disparity, that difference, is a reflection of either policies those states have introduced over the years or changes they haven't made. As you know, these days, state governments or county governments they're struggling themselves with revenue problems. So we have an initiative within the U.S. Department of Agriculture where we go around to those states and encourage them 
to simplify their business processes, not unlike what industry is doing. And in so doing, they both uh, can get the job done with, with the same number of staff or even fewer, but they also, are, they also meet our expectations about timeliness and good stewardship or, or quality uh, for responding to the people in need in their state. I was in Florida recently. Florida is one of the most adversely affected states by this downturn in the economy, the housing market, et cetera. And Florida is doing a terrific job of engaging people across the state and a whole variety of not-for-profit groups. I think they advised me about 3,300 separate organizations in Florida participate in something called ACCESS, and ACCESS is just an acronym for facilitating the entry into that state eligibility program. So we see states like that, states like the several I mentioned earlier, but other states that are more uh, lethargic about this. And part of my personal effort is to try to uh, better engage those states. I'm working very closely with Texas, and I might say the new leadership in Texas has been very committed to bring Texas up to where it ought to be. It was one of the lowest performing states in the country, and they're on the move right now, and I I want them to be as proud of what they're doing for their poorest citizens as they are of their college football teams. Well, one can appreciate the importance of these programs in the real lives of people. You know, the research is very clear that, that hungry children don't learn in schools, and their physical development is different than kids who are well-nourished. And so the fact that you're, you have so many millions of people being reached by these programs is very impressive. I wanted to, to switch gears for a little bit and ask about dietary guidelines. Yes. So that falls under your purview as well. And so the, the dietary guidelines for Americans that end up in the food guide pyramid and things like that are, um, are happening under your watch. So tell us a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, about the how important those are and how many parts of the nutrition landscape in the United States are affected? One of the most, as you said, I have a kind of a dual responsibility for the Food Nutrition Service, but also for a very important center called the National Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion. And that center for policy, uh, nutrition policy and promotion partnered with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services every five years uh, federally, and it goes back to the turn of the last century, every five years we promulgate something called the Dietary Guidelines for All Americans. And the reach of those recommendations is enormous because they inform all of the federal agencies, the health departments, the human service agencies, the ag department, the Department of Defense, the Department of Education, all these agencies that touch on the lives of virtually all Americans at one time or another the standards by which the guidelines, so to speak, come from the dietary guidelines. And those guidelines are developed not by federal uh, staff or federal personnel per se. We turn to uh, an external group through uh, the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee that is brought together with leading experts from uh, the health professions, from nutrition, from universities across the country, and they based on science, based on evidence, make recommendations to the Dietary Guidelines Committee. And that group met over a two-year period. They made their recommendations uh, earlier this year, and currently 
staff at the Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion, uh, in consultation with staff from uh, Health and Human Services, are writing the actual principles for application of the dietary guidelines. And our goal is to have those guidelines promulgated in December of this year. They come out every five years. We're currently operating under the dietary guidelines of 2005. These would be the 2010. And it will come, no, as no surprise to you as an expert, but the, the recommendations are, for all Americans, will be more fruits, more vegetables, more whole grains in the diet, less sodium, less sugar, less meat, more uh, fish. And, uh, you know, more of a balance, basically. Uh, and uh, we're, we're excited about that. Much work has gone into it. As you know, we get more and more evidence that gets built up uh, through various uh, researches, such as that that you do at the at the Rudd Center, and that's informing us for what we're then recommending to Americans. And when I met with that uh, committee that put together the guidelines, I said, "You may be one of the most important committees uh, in in all of government in that we actually take your recommendations and apply them." It's not a powerful report that sits somewhere. It gets applied. So uh, it's, it's very potent. Let me uh, follow up on this application of this because once the guidelines have been developed, then there's the issue of how to communicate this information right. to Americans in a way people can understand and make use of. And over the years, the dietary guidelines have been communicated in different ways. I mean, I remember back when I was younger, it was the four food groups. And then right. at some point, it became a pyramid, and then it became a different pyramid. And so are there discussions now about the best way to communicate these new dietary there guidelines? There are very intense discussions that have been going on not only within the USDA and HHS, but actually in the White House. There's great interest in the White House uh, uh, in these matters. And uh, again, some of your listeners may be aware that many Americans are aware that uh, there are dietary guidelines. They're aware of the My Pyramid, the Food Pyramid, that has become kind of an iconic representation of uh, what the, the different food groups and eating healthy. But what we also know is while people are mindful or are aware of the dietary guidelines or My Pyramid, that doesn't necessarily mean they convert that into their behaviors. So there's great and intense interest in saying, are there different ways we could either promote the, the My Pyramid or, or visually characterize what we're trying to do in ways that would result in uh, sustained behavioral change on the part of Americans. Now, again, I, I compare, you know, the, the, the problems that we have in this country with obesity to where we were 40 years ago in terms of tobacco usage. It wasn't just one st set of steps that helped reduce tobacco usage in this country. It was a variety of strategies. And so we know that Part of one of some of the most important strategies, of course, uh, are, will be based on the dietary guidelines and the My Pyramid or its variation, whatever that theme may be. But we also know that the food manufacturers have a role to play in all of this. The advertising industry has a role to play in it. That that this is uh, the, where we are today in terms of eating habits, our over reliance on processed foods is a function of uh, changes in lifestyle, two-parent households, one-parent households, uh, people not having time or 
not having even the experience and the skills to to cook uh, plain foods anymore. And so we're going to have to try to uh, make a whole series of, in effect, changes in our culture that we can support to, uh, that will be sustainable to get people back on the track of of both uh, eating better but also exercising. Well, it'll be very interesting to see what the next generation is of the current food guide pyramid and whether that can really help educate people and inform the behavior. So I'd like to, to end by asking you about a particular piece of legislation that is is current, uh, the Child Nutrition Reauthorization mm-hmm. um, legislation. And um, would you mind explaining what's in that legislation and, and how it affects children and their nutrition? And then we can talk about its fate. Yes. As you know, uh, every five years in federal law, particularly the federal laws that finance programs, those laws come up for reauthorization is the term, and they can be either substantially uh, reenacted in the form they're in or they can be tinkered with or hopefully improved. And this year is the year for, actually it should have been last year, but this year is the year we have the opportunity to for the reauthorization of the Child Nutrition Act, which incorporates the, the National School Lunch Program, the School Breakfast Program, the Summer Feeding Program, parts of the WIC Program, the Women, Infants, and Children's Program, and the Child and Adult Care Feeding Program, the, the program that is almost principally available to our, I should say, the majority of it is available to children in child care, but some of it is actually available for uh, day centers for seniors. Uh, that program is up before Congress. It was passed by the Senate Ag Committee first, financed on the Senate side to the tune of about $4.5 billion over 10 years. The president had initially asked for $10 billion over 10 years, or $1 billion a year. Then it moved over to the House. The House passed a very strong bill that would have, if it were financed, would have been around $8.5 billion dollars. But it is stalled on the financing of it. And uh, recently, I was very disappointed that the House did not take action on the bill, didn't vote on it before it recessed for the elections. Now, there's a possibility that that it will be acted upon in the lame duck session, so-called. Some people believe that will happen. Others uh, worry about that. But uh, it is a, a major piece of legislation. It had some very powerful elements in it, very strong, positive ones. So improvements from the previous version. Improvements would have allowed uh, schools, lunch and school breakfast, uh, school lunch in particular, less so breakfast, to receive higher reimbursements. And we know in our own lives that often for those healthier foods we want, they cost more. So that's no less true when schools are purchasing food. So it's very important that. But it also had some positive policy elements. It would have made it easier for families uh, who are having a rough time financially to access those free and reduced-priced meals through something called direct certification. Uh, it uh, It would have provided some other grants for governors if they really wanted to put together a a whole series of initiatives to end hunger in their states uh, through waivers, uh, federal waivers, others. But one of the most important elements was on the policy side. It would have given the USDA the authority to regulate all foods in schools. And the underlying rationale and reason there is to get the unhealthy foods out of schools. 
what has come to be called competitive foods, often junk foods, uh, often uh, a la carte lines, so-called, where you know uh, the main group of kids goes through the, the principal meal offered, but everybody's over on the side having pizza or something else. And we know by the experience we've had in a category of schools called Healthier U.S. School Challenges, we have 840 of these schools nationally. They meet a much higher standard. They don't allow competitive foods. They focus on wellness and exercise, and uh, they 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 abide by the highest quality requirements in terms of food. I've been to a number of those schools where there are very poor children, as well as schools that have you know a smaller percentage of poor children. But I've seen the kids eating, smiling, enjoying healthier foods, and so I know it can be done. Uh, uh, but those schools do not allow competitive foods. And I think we need to do this. Uh, we got bipartisan support for it, uh, not only through the advocacy of the school nutrition experts and nutritionists, but we actually had a, a group of retired gen- military generals and admirals who were concerned about the the declining numbers of young people who meet the the physical standards for for induction into the military based on uh, the high percentage of young Americans who are overweight. So I think that helped us get the bipartisanship on that policy question, and I certainly, uh, I think that was one of the most important parts of it. So another reason for me to to be worried that, that we would miss this opportunity. We really shouldn't as a country. So it sounds like the, the content of the legislation had support in both the House and the Senate, but where it stalled, you said, was the financing, you know, finding money to pay for it. Could you? Yeah, the, st- the stall was on something. First of all, these days, Congress is much more sensitive about, uh, in both parties, about, uh, about uh, deficits. So there is a requirement referred to the lingo of pay-go, or pay-as-you-go, meaning if a one committee, if it inserts a, a, new, a bill that has new cost with it, that committee is supposed to find the offsets or find an offsetting reduction to pay for that. And the challenge here was in finding the offsets. And the a major portion of the offset in the Senate bill and proposed in the House bill would take future SNAP or future food stamp benefit increases that are currently in place would have them end in uh, at a certain month in 2013. And there are a lot of people, particularly in the in the hunger advocacy community, that are very upset by that and said, we're opposed to that bill. Others, a broader group of advocacy groups, said, we don't like that. We certainly don't like taking money, out f- even in the future, out of uh, a program that serves uh, poor people. But we recognize that nobody has come up with a viable uh, other alternative uh, for PAYGO. So we'll go along with that with the hope and expectation that in the future Congress and the administration can figure out other ways to to deal with that offset. Now, to me, the important distinction here is that the proposed reductions in the SNAP or the food stamp program were in the future. If 5 million more people came forward in the next month in the food stamp program, we can serve them. If 10 million come forward in the next year, we can serve them. So there's no cap or limit on people who are eligible who who need the program, it is a future uh, ending of that additional benefit that was put on through the stimulus program. And my view of that is that 
That's 2013 as proposed. There'll be lots of opportunities between now and 2013 to, to promote, advocate, to rescind, or to find other ways to deal with that. But by not acting on it this year, it means that the, the school year that has already started, the federal year that has already started, started October 1, those new funds are not available right now for those 32 million children. And I think that's very disappointing to me. Um, is there any, can you prognosticate on what the political future is likely to be of this legislation? You know, it, it, it's, uh, it's hard for me to know. I would have voted for it. And again, I understand it. I would have voted for it. I, I consider myself an advocate for, for these, these children and the people who are affected by it. But it got caught up in there's a, there's a split, uh, unfortunately, uh, in, in the advocacy community between those who advocate hunger responses and they, they, they are, have a secondary interest in the nutrition issues. And then you have other folks who are more primarily interested in nutrition have a secondary interest in the, in the hunger, the anti-hunger aspect of it. Now, I'm simplifying a little there, but... Basically, that that split occurred, and the the uh, I think that's what uh, uh, affected some members of Congress so that they were unwilling to to pass uh, pass the bill. And again, as I say, I think uh, I fear it was a lost opportunity. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing this experience. It's just amazing how many people people are affected in positive ways by the programs that the USDA runs. So. I'm very grateful for you talking to us about this. Well, thank you, and thank you for the great work that the Rudd Center uh, does affecting uh, programs and policies like this. Well, thanks very much. So our guest today was Kevin Concanon, Undersecretary for Food, Nutrition, and Consumer Services in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Food, Nutrition, and Consumer Services. Thank you very much for joining us, and please visit our website at www.yaleruddcenter.org for a list of other excellent podcasts that have been recorded in the past, Um, a free email newsletter about food and food policy issues and a variety of resources on other policy topics. Thank you.